Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto blockchain and Web 3.0 space. Blockchain Recorded's mission is simple, to share knowledge and insight and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals and decentralization solutions. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserer. I have a finance background, having worked on Wall Street and the pharmaceutical industry. After living in five countries and dedicating time to my family, I left the corporate world. Today, I work as a freelance consultant and am fascinated by the innovative space of crypto and blockchain, different ways of thinking, and the people that are making that happen. So let's talk blockchain. Before we begin, let me say a few words about our sponsor. This episode's sponsor is Fourth Tech, which is short for Fourth Pillar Technologies. Fourth Tech is contributing to the blockchain infrastructure ecosystem and adding solutions to fulfill basic user needs on decentralized networks. For example, the 4DX protocol serves data file exchange between digital wallets. Imagine that you need to send some sensitive files across the globe using existing online services. How would you do it? probably over email, WhatsApp, Dropbox, etc. These are all centralized services where you as a user don't have any control. If you use 4DX, only the receiver's private key can decrypt the receiver's data files. Fourthtech also invented their own wallet called 4, the 4ID solution, and 4NS on top. 4ID connects wallets when data is exchanged and serves as the public key exchange point between users. 4NS is a notarization service that uses the blockchain transaction hash to determine the origin and timestamp of the exchange data files. If used correctly, it could potentially render notaries obsolete. 4IM, or on-chain instant messaging, is a more recent commercial and user-friendly solution that everyone can understand. A lot of projects are solving the on-chain chat for obvious reasons of communication privacy. Until fast 3.0 blockchains, such as Solana, this was challenging to achieve without compromise. The 4IM protocol leverages the Solana blockchain to serve as an immutable ledger exchanging encrypted messages from 4Wall's sole address A to 4Wall's sole address B. Fully on-chain, one message represents one transaction. So to sum it up, fourth tech solutions are made for all end users and enterprises that need the security of decentralized systems. Check out fourth tech at fourthtech.io. This episode is also sponsored by CoinMarketLeague.com. CoinMarketLeague is a platform helping investors to find interesting coins and projects to gain more exposure and social following. At CoinMarketLeague, users vote for their favorite projects, discover events, and upcoming IDOs on different launchpads. Head on to CoinMarketLeague.com and learn more. So today we have with us Mitya Simcic, the co-founder and CTO at Global ID, as well as Greg Kidd also the co-founder and CEO at Global ID. Uh, Greg, Mitya, welcome to Blockchain Recorded. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Great. Thanks to you. Can you each maybe introduce yourselves and give us a short bio? I can let you decide sure. whoever wants to go first. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go first. My name is Mitya. Originally, I'm from Slovenia mm. and my background is computer science. I'd also did the MBA. I was kind of always fond of the internet. I started in the very early 90s when I was still a kid, mm. built my first computer together. And then that kind of led me to found my first startup when I was 22 and kind of never looked back from the entrepreneurial kind of world. And then approximately eight years ago, I got the opportunity to move to US and I chose Silicon Valley. Uh, started to work with, with some big companies there and uh, along the way I met Greg 
Uh, and a couple of years later, he introduced to me this idea of global ID and how we need to kind of change the world and then how, how the world's broken. And the more we talked about it, the more I was intrigued by the idea. And then soon after, we kind of co-founded Global ID. Did I actually, just to to take a few steps back, did you build your computer in the, when you were young in the 90s? Did I understand that correctly? I mean, yeah, I, I just bought, bought the components and kind of... Oh, the components? Together. And yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, Greg, can we hear about you? Sure. I, I, I grew up on the East Coast, went to school on the East Coast, went to work at Booz Allen. Mm. Uh, I was involved with the telecom DREG, some financial services DREG. Started my own company actually in the bike messenger industry. We learned a lot about text messaging and uh, payments that spread throughout the world, went public. But importantly, Jack Dorsey was very interested in dispatch, hacked into that. I hired him. And so we lived together a couple of times on and off. And Therefore, I was lucky enough to be with him when he started Twitter. Um, so I was a early, uh, just very early in there, both as an investor and did some work there. And same for Square. I had taken some time off to work at the Federal Reserve in the payments group, where we run the, the ACH and the wire system for the United States. And so I got that regulatory perspective as well and continued to work in regulatory advisory work when I moved back out to Silicon Valley, but also moonlighted. And after Twitter and Square was involved in startups like Coinbase and Ripple, where I was the uh, chief risk officer. So got involved in the uh, in the crypto industry and remained interested in what forms of digital identity would work with these new technologies. And so the genesis of uh, Global ID was to create a form of self-sovereign portable identity where your identity could be used again and again in a privacy-preserving yet secure way. Um, and teamed up with Mitya and the team in Slovenia to build that that infrastructure all the time while continuing to invest through our investment company, Hard Yaka, which which now includes a portfolio of approximately 200, 200 companies all around all around the world. That brings me up to today. Wow, that's a very rich background. And how was working with Jack Dorsey? That must have been interesting that w those were maybe his first steps. Well, Jack was great at, at teaching me about new technology. So, for mm -hmm. instance, I learned about Java mm -hmm. from, from Jack, but he was always a very uh, simple and deliberate thinker. And so it was critical to see him take what we built for the bike messenger industry, mm -hmm. which was 140 characters and text messaging and strip that down and generalize it for Twitter. So I'm grateful for the chance to see Jack's uh, simplifying uh, methodologies, which you know was critical for the formation of Twitter and also keeping Square and Square Cash really simple. And, and that's been a big part of its success. So, so Jack's always been good and better than I at making things simple. Uh, mm. Continue to find that to be like uh, a guidepost for me going forward, hopefully mm -hmm. for Global ID as well. So it sounds like you have a, a, a very keen eye for also the regulatory aspect for the crypto space, given your background. We do have a keen eye for the regulatory aspect. Some of the firms we've been involved with have been in some of the disputes like Ripple with uh, mm. the SEC. Um, mm. And there are uh, ongoing uh, licensing issues and also ongoing legal issues we've had with who who owns the data. Does Facebook own your data because right. it's servers or do you own your data? And so we have been involved in what we would call the the, the reg tech industry mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. which involves sometimes uh, litigating to clarify rights about things to do with crypto or things to do with data. Um, and so that's been a big, big part of our effort as well, not only writing software, but also clarifying legal precedents around these new technologies. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we'll definitely get more into that, into also in the into the Facebook issue and and everything that you just mentioned. Um, but just maybe to start off, um, maybe Mitya, what brought you to the decentralized world, and when did you actually discover that blockchain tech would be suitable for fixing or dealing with digital identity? It's kind of like a funny story. Um, we were working on one of our startups and we were deciding what the next idea should be. And one of the ideas was, was actually, hey, we should maybe mine the Bitcoin. Um, and that was very early on. That was like 2011. And at the time, I mean, the developers came to me and said, oh, why shouldn't we just mine the Bitcoin? That's going to be a good thing. And I was, <laughs> it, it was just too risky for me at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of said, ah, no, no, we'll, we'll let it, we'll pass this one and, and work on something more tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I moved to US, that was when the first crypto boom happened. But that was when the Bitcoin price went over a thousand dollars. So I started to kind of put more thought into it, and I started mm-hmm. learning more about the technologies and so on. And actually, the first project Greg and I did together was uh, a web wallet, a web XRP wallet. So uh, and, and that actually got me really close to uh, all the different uh, protocols and, and different things. So I, I got really deep into it. And then when the identity came, it was it was kind of like a natural. Uh, the blockchain was kind of like a natural um, I don't know, solution for it because it, it belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to anybody. That There's no central sure. authority and mm-hmm. things like that. So that that's where kind of like the deeper dive happened. That was 2016, 2017. And yeah, I, I never looked back from there. Great. Yeah, I think also people are increasingly aware of the importance of self-sovereignty, right? I mean, or in this context, as we're talking, and um, I'm not sure if you actually use this interchangeably. Um, Sovereign digital identity, is that, when when we say digital identity, does that mean sovereign digital identity for for you guys? Um, Do you distinguish between the two? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we all have digital identities today. The problem is that you have a digital identity at Google, at Facebook, at yes. all of the online retailers that you use, and those are right. all different identities. Mm-hmm. And and the, the problem where the sovereignty comes in it is that you don't control not even one of them. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's the big problem. So you are right. The self-sovereign identity is... Uh, people are becoming more and more aware of it. And uh, th- th- there's also a lot of different factors that that kind of like are speeding this up, including COVID as bad as it is. The um, people are kind of learning and, and seeing how important the digital identity is. And why should I, every time I go somewhere, why should I register and create a new identity? And mm-hmm. why can't I take my reputation with me and, and things like that? So th- there's a big kind of... Uh, distinction between the self-sovereign identity and just digital identity. Mm-hmm. Maybe before we talk more about the self-sovereign digital identity, it would be great to maybe first sort of take a quick trip down memory lane and unpack the historical journey of the digital identity's development. So maybe if one of you can take us through its evolution with Web 1.0, Web 2.0, and now with Web 3.0, what does that mean and how it's progressed? Sure. I, I mean, I think I can field that one. So I think a big event in, in digital identity happened over 10 years ago with the creation of OAuth by, uh, it was actually by Twitter, which created a, a way that you could use your Twitter identity to log into other sites and, and log into other sites in a way that those other sites wouldn't actually get your credentials. They would just get a token. Mm-hmm. And so it was the beginning of of having the identity of one site be usable at other sites. And then Facebook did Facebook Connect. And, and those two social media sites became popular login methods for, for other sites. And so that began to, to 
address the issue of portability. It was still Twitter and Facebook owning your identity, but at least you could make it make it reusable. And, you know, with Google and Apple joining in on that, people got pretty used to seeing those three or four different login options at many, many websites. But mm-hmm. as we learned from the Cambridge Analytica scandal, mm-hmm. the, the cost of all that was those sites had your identity information, and they weren't too circumspect with keeping that private. They were willing to resell your data and use it for advertising purposes. And so you became their product, even though you weren't paying for their their services. And so that has at various times been annoying to problematic in terms of it being used to like target people to tip elections and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. while that form of portable identity uh, works, it's controlled by, you know, the four four big major tech companies in the in the search and identity space. And so the question is, what's the alternative to that? Uh, and, and that's really where self-sovereignty comes in. And right now, there still isn't an overall competing protocol that's accepted globally, where you could expect when you, you go to a site, you're still expecting to see you know an option, mostly from Facebook and, and Google and sometimes Apple. But really, Facebook and Google have become the, uh, the dominant players. But it was Twitter that originally came up with OAuth and OAuth2. Mm-hmm. Michi, did you want to add anything in on that? No, that was perfect. I mean, maybe just a small anecdote in Web1 sphere. When I remember back in the 90s, we used things like BBS bulletin board systems and then the IRC chat came along and so on. So it, it was funny because we, even though everybody was completely anonymous, I knew half of the people there. So it was it was great for Web1. But now that pretty much the whole humanity is on, online, it's it's we need something else. And, and the self-sovereignty is what we think the answer to this. Mm-hmm. And Greg, before you also mentioned a, a key keyword credentials. Can you maybe unpack that? What, sure. what had, a credential. Had, yeah. yeah. Keep going. So you can almost think of a credential as as like uh, if you went on an Easter egg hunt and you collected a bunch of badges, and the badge might be like a proof that you control a certain phone number or that mm-hmm. you match a photo on a certain government ID mm-hmm. or that you log into a financial account or a social network or even packs like a CAPTCHA or a liveness test. Each of these proofs is a statement that at such and such a time, you did or you could prove such and such to another party. And if you write that down in a cryptographically secure way, it's a credential, or you can think of it like a badge. And it might be that, hey, I can fly a helicopter, or hey, I really did graduate from that university, mm-hmm. or I really do collect this phone number. And you can collect those proofs and share them or display them publicly without revealing the underlying information. So people know that you've passed a certain level of proofs, but they don't get to know the underlying information unless you really want to share that with them. And in many situations, having those credentials, those proofs, is enough to get you permission to act because you're always relying on some other party to trust your identity and the credentials about it to make a decision whether to board this airplane or whether to process this payment. Those are all based on on some level of trust. And the question is, how can you earn and share trust or convey it without actually having to reveal personally identifiable private information. Mm-hmm. So credentials is a is a short phrase for for encapsulating that in a standard logic that we can we can cart around just like we have could wear like buttons on our jacket to, to tell people that we you know we belong to a certain club or have achieved a certain level of competence. What are the differences in digital identity for individuals, for private individuals versus companies? Or are there differences? Sure. So so companies they they, they have different credentials as well. So lots of companies, especially in regulated industries, have a license. 
and, and that's perhaps the, the most important credential that they they have. But they have other credentials too, like that they've received in corporation, and they can also prove that they control particular bank accounts or other credentials as well. So they call talk about know your customer KYC, but there's also KYB, know your business as well. So mm-hmm. both people and organizations, including DAOs or LLCs or corporations or really any group, have the same challenge. You know, what's their name? What credentials do they have? And can you trust them? Mm-hmm. Great, thanks. Um, I actually um, I read an article on your Medium blog uh, titled "Every Company Is an Identity Company," um, saying that we've now reached the stage where every company is going to be an identity company, right? Um, what maybe Mitya? I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Maybe you can dive deeper. Yeah. So the way we look at this is that if you look at a certain, like stages that that I as a user go through with any service that's out there, it all kind of starts with identity. Mm. So we, we started to use this term internally, like every company is going to be an identity company. And, and we started to use that because also kind of like historical, in historical terms, we, we look at the web one was uh, the, the process from going from web one to web two was all about, oh, every company now is going to be an online company. So, and in early 2000s, all of the businesses were kind of shifting online and uh, they were doing not, not just the websites, but they were, they were building services online. And then in kind of like early, I mean, early kind of years of like maybe right after Facebook became known and so on, uh, we, we could say that now that every company has become kind of this social company and it was all about finances as well online. And that took us all the way from 2010s but now in 2020s, we believe that companies are realizing more and more, as well as users, that their identity is actually the most important thing. And it all kind of starts with identity. That's why we came up with the phrase of every company is an identity company. And that's for sure is going to take us through 2020s. Yeah, definitely. Um, interesting. Well, let, let's actually, I'd, I'd like to move on to the concept of DeFi. So the popularity and adoption in DeFi can also, to a certain extent, be attributed to anonymity, right? Users don't have to identify when when using DeFi protocols, but their wallets act as an identifier, if I understand that correctly. I did have a listen to a few of your Global ID company podcasts. So I know you're on board with the DeFi movement as it's recreating CeFi. Do you have an opinion on where and perhaps when, I assume if is not a question, you think sovereign digital identity will be adopted in this space? Um, And we love use cases, so... Maybe we can dive into use cases as well. I'll let Greg take this one because Greg's yeah, <laughs> ex-regulator. <laughs> I was aiming yeah. for you, Greg. <laughs> sure. So, so the first thing is that DeFi is now really happening. Like if, mm. if, if we were having this meeting um, a year ago, the number of folks that were actually participating and the amount of value that was tied up in, in DeFi exchanges was, was quite small. But, mm. but now there's like a quarter of a trillion dollars tied up in, in various contracts on, on distributed networks. And for all those funds that are tied up, they're tied up for uses where two parties are interacting. It might be for a trade. It might be for um, buying an NFT. It might be a whole raft of things that we're used to doing in the traditional world. But in this new DeFi world, there's not a central operator connecting the payor and the payee or the two parties to a transaction. It's very, very flat. And it is true that all that can happen without identity because in the DeFi world, you don't have to trust the other party. The software makes sure that collateral or other forms of value are locked up 
So depending on how people perform, you always know you're going to get paid as long as the smart contract executes. So you don't need identity to perform a DeFi transaction, but that doesn't mean that the regulators think that that's that that's compliant. And so independent of the fact that the technology can work without identity, the regulators may say, in order for us to know that this isn't involved with someone who is perhaps implicated in terrorist financing or money laundering or tax evasion, we believe the records of everything you do should show that the counterparties you were dealing with have a, a trusted identity. You, on the other side, may not need to know who exactly that person was, but if there's an audit, there should be a way for a regulator or law enforcement to, to find out the identity information about the, the, the two parties to a transaction on a need-to-know basis. So it may not be about exchanging information with the other parties that you're dealing with when you're doing DeFi, but it may mean that your identity and the counterparty's identity for any particular transaction may be discoverable through due process in a particular legal jurisdiction. Now, that certainly raises all sorts of questions, like one, if you're in one legal jurisdiction and the person in the other side of your transaction is in another mm. legal jurisdiction, then the servers that it happened on are in a third legal jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And you know the place where the data is stored is in a fourth legal jurisdiction. The question is, who gets to like have a say as to what data should be revealed? Those questions really haven't been answered yet or even really addressed by regulators. They're still just trying to catch up and understand DeFi. So currently right now, there really are no regulations that are delineating who should do what in a DeFi transaction. So it is the Wild West out there. But we do believe that regulation and law enforcement will get their acts together and have something to say about this. But they're going to have to do it in a way that is cognizant of the fact that these DeFi transactions, these DeFi exchanges are already, are already global. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the facts on the ground is that this transactional activity is, is, already, is already happening. Mm, that, that's fantastic. Thanks for that. Um, what about, so we, we sort of, we alluded to DeFi. What about NFTs? How does it work there? Is that the same concept or are there other hurdles to take into account? Well, some NFTs can be minted in essentially closed loop environments, which are kind of like the sort of the web 2.0 world of NFTs. So you can mm -hmm. have something like N NBA hotshots where you can, there are NFTs, but you can only sort of own them and trade them within a very closed ecosystem where everybody everybody's identity can be controlled by the operator. But there are other NFTs that are getting out there and they're basically minted in the wild. Um, and so for, for, for those NFTs, it's possible to, to own them and exchange them without having any known identity or compliant identity attached to them. And so you may purchase a very, a very nice board ape, but you may not know who you're purchasing it from. And mm. you may not care, but at the end of the day, if that person that you're purchasing it for was like generating value because they were, you know, funding some terrorist operation, that could be a problem. <laughs> yeah. So you may, just like you can buy a, a blood diamond for your fiance, mm. um, you know, when they come around to cuff her, she may not be too impressed that you bought her a blood diamond <laughs> no. as opposed to, uh, you know, a diamond with a proper certificate of title. And so just because you can mint something with a title doesn't mean that it's compliant. And also you can mint something that has a, a title and have that title only work in a very you know, sort of limited closed environment, which is is very sort of web 2.0 rather than web 3.0. So all that is is playing out right now. A lot of noise around the NFT space, but we're really in the uh, in the early days. Mm -hmm. Let's let's shift to um, global ID. 
So what is Global ID and how has it evolved from your beginnings? So since your inception, um, and what exactly are you aiming to solve? I mean, Mitch, you alluded to it before. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a shot of that. Yes. Uh, so we, we've been working on globally for almost six years now. And uh, the vision has always stayed the same. We, mm. we started with the vision of, hey, something needs to change. And uh, we, we want to live in a better kind of internet world, online world, where we control our own identities. When we started, we didn't have any, uh, like the, the, there were no protocols out yet. So we came up with our own kind of proprietary protocol that we call attestations. And that's exactly what Greg talks about uh, when he says credentials. But it, it has evolved a lot since then. We we now are a member of W3C, where we're working on a standards called, double, uh, called verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers. So we're kind of trying to help push this uh, protocols out there so that everybody uses the same protocols. And, and if that happens, then all of a sudden, then it becomes interoperable. One of the things along the way that we learned very early on is that identity itself is not gonna do it like we we cannot build uh kind of like this good app if people are only going to use it for some sort of purpose like only maybe just a login and so on so we 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 kind of added two additional layers on top of that one is communication layer and the other one is value layer mm -hmm. so communication layer is all about exchanging information and value layer is all about exchanging value so and and with those things in mind what the one thing if if we were to describe what global id kind of solves for is is trust and then the idea is really that down the line when i have build this identity and I put so and so many credentials to it. I put so I had so and so many communications with different people and services and I've exchanged so and so much value. If we fast forward 20 years from now, my identity could be very reputable. And maybe there is a world out there in the future where somebody does not have to look at my PII, does not have to know my name, my date of birth or, or where I'm from or whatever. But but it could be enough that they've seen all of the actions that I've done in the past and that could mean that that's enough for for me to get the bank account to to open the doors or anything like that so that, that's kind of like really what we're trying to solve with globality to kind of like this future world of greg likes to call it star trek st star trek world where kind of like everything's kind of like easy and, and the doors just open for you Greg, do do add to that as well that, that's it i mean i would say the one sort of twist that's unique to global id is we push the concept of a namespace, which is that every person, every organization has a unique name and you can have more than one name, but no two people can have the same name. And you just attach all these credentials to that. And if your name has a good enough reputation, you know, you kind of get the Rolls Royce treatment wherever you go without having to like give up a lot of private information. And so it's, it's kind of old fashioned that if you actually build a reputation around a name, you may not have to actually technically share so much information because the other party can simply trust your reputation. So it's a very old fashioned, almost tribal concept, but it could actually operate now at, at global scale. And so we're all in on the namespace. It was the thing that let the World Wide Web make the internet usable by people and by businesses as opposed to just governments and academic institutions. Because when the World Wide Web came along, it had a namespace. You could go to coca-cola.com and you were pretty confident that that was Coca-Cola and you didn't have to know some numerical address. And so just like there was a domain namespace back in the 1990s, we're introducing the idea of an identity namespace here in this, uh, in this decade. Um. Greg, did you watch Star Trek? <laughs> the fact I would just be before uh, Mitya mentioned that you you have that vision. Um, does that mean that you were a Trekkie? <laughs> uh, 
I, I was a Trekkie and the things that were amazing was, you know, the doors knew how to open for the good guys and stay closed for the bad guys. Everybody in the future seemed to know how to, to buy <laughs> dilithium crystals. Didn't matter whether you were a Romulan or a Cleon or from the Federation. Right. And, uh, and, and all, whenever Kirk landed on a local planet, all the, all the natives all seemed to speak English. So clearly <laughs> somebody had, had written those episodes. We didn't see them to make all those things, um, all yeah. those things possible. And we, we view Global ID's mission is to write those missing missing mm. scenes that, that make that simpler future possible. Could I make the claim that Global ID, the Global ID platform empowers the user to control his or her own information? Absolutely. Yes, but it's not just about rights. It's also about responsibilities because mm. you're yeah. controlling it, but you, know, you can have 100% control, but if you don't share mm. or make that available to other parties that are relying on it, you never get anything because then you're only like living in your own isolation. So, so mm -hmm. the, the world of what doesn't matter whether you're a communist or a capitalist, we live in an exchange society. Mm -hmm. And so whether we're exchanging goods for money or, or other, other interactions, you're always looking to have a, a trusted interaction with other parties. And so a big part of our infrastructure is how do you build tools to support trusted engagement? And we've all seen how Facebook does it. You have to be a prisoner of the Facebook ecosystem. The question is, how do you do that not trapped within one social media network? How do you do that as a general construct? And, and really, that's the that's the foundational work that Global ID is doing. That's actually that, that's actually one of my questions. How do you do that by not being trapped into I mean, this one one sort of ecosystem? Yeah, Greg, kind of briefly describe the kind of the thinking behind verifiable credentials. Maybe I can provide more of a technical description there as well. So it's it's a three party uh, system that a lot of people call the, the the trust system. So you have issuer, you have a verifier, and you have a holder. And it's very similar to our physical world. I mean, you would go to here in the United States to DMV to get a driver's license. So the DMV kind of issues you a driver's license, which is a verifiable credential, and then you store it in your wallet. And then when you walk around and you need to prove that you're over 21 to buy beer from the store, the mm -hmm. store is the verifier. So the same principle happens here. As Greg mentioned, we use a lot of cryptography and it, it's a standard. Now, there is one key important thing there, which is called a decentralized identifier. And the, is, the easiest way to look at this is it's kind of like a public key that the issuer puts on, on, on the blockchain. And that public key needs to be used. That it needs to be used whenever the verifier is verifying the data. So let's say DMV now issues me a digital credential. Uh, I hold it in my phone and, and it's nowhere else online. So so that, that also kind of plays nicely with, with all of, for example, the Europe's GDPR and, and mm -hmm. US CCPA that we have here in California and so on. So nobody else has that information. And then I choose when I want to share that with, for example, the store, if I want to buy beer or something. And there are actually two good advantages. One is the Greg mentioned selectively sharing the data. So not only I can pick and choose, okay, I'm just going to share date of birth and maybe the picture from that government ID with that, that store so they can check that I'm over 21. There's one other thing that, that's called zero knowledge proofs where I can just share maybe the photo and the zero knowledge proof that I'm over 21. So I, I can even like hide the fact when I was born to the store, but they, they can still be 100% certain that, that I am over 21. And, and maybe just the last bit, that bit that I mentioned, that's the, the only piece that kind of lives on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. So how do you, before we, Greg mentioned the, so the, the trusted interaction, right? This is a trusted interaction. How exactly, how do you achieve this trusted interaction while providing safety and eliminating interference by a third party, such as 
maybe global ID or the government or whoever. Yeah. I mean, this this may be just sort of a layperson's um, question. You know, this is not my space. I'm tr I'm just trying to understand it more. Yeah. It, so is this is this where blockchain comes in? It, it's a very fair question. Uh, no, it's okay. it's uh, where, where blockchain comes in is the the verifying part. So the verifying. The way part. we achieve this, the way we achieve this is that uh, the way we build global ID is that we don't know anything about you. So that, that that's mm. the thing. So every we 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 act as a cloud. So the closest way to compare this would be, for example, a lot of you, everybody's or a lot of people are using password managers. So what happens is the data gets encrypted, decrypted on your device itself. So maybe mm -hmm. either, well, I mean, we have the mobile app, so it, it happens there with the password managers usually happens on the, as an extension in the browser or something. And then that data gets just kind of an encrypted version of that data gets sent to the cloud and we just store that. So in case you lose your phone or something, we still have an option to recover your identity and restore it. Uh, but but you, we give you a key and with that key, you control your identity. And that key is only known to you and nobody else, including Global ID. Another thing that, that we're trying to do as much as we can of is the... Anything that kind of we anything that we store, we're trying to keep it as anonymous as possible. So even if or or when the hackers are going to hack Global ID, they're going to get the data, and then if they brute force the the encrypted data and so on, they, they might still get just bits and pieces. So the, so they might get Nina, they might get Greg, and mm -hmm. they might get a date of birth, but they're not going to know which date of birth goes with with Nina or or Greg. So th there's a number of things that we're trying to do to kind of make it as um, secure as possible but but the bottom line is that your data actually lives on your device which is your mobile phone and that acts as a key to unlock the doors share the pii or do anything else that that, that you want to do okay i'll try to i'll try so to let me, uh, let me just summarize the, the key point on 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 Mitch's piece we he mentioned it but just to emphasize it mm -hmm. is global id is the protocol that allows this all to happen but we don't have the keys to unlock your data. Mm. So even if the government came and said, well, I, I really want to see some information about, you know, about Greg or Nina, we can say, well, that's fine, but we don't have the keys. And so, so that's an interesting thing where we can build the protocol and we can operate it from the cloud, but that doesn't mean that we ourselves have access to that data. So mm -hmm. that's what makes it super private to the end user. If they do share it with say a regulated entity that needs that access, they can share that access right with that one entity mm -hmm. uh, without, again, putting that data out there for everyone else to see. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's a key design criteria is that even we don't have access to the data. Whereas, of course, with Facebook, they have access to all your data. <laughs> they I love talking about Facebook. <laughs> well, they, they are they are the the mother load of, yes. of of an alternative way. Well, but the same would be true of WeChat and the fact that the Chinese government can see everything you say and do in, in WeChat. Mm -hmm. um, so those are those are two alternatives out there that are either kind of uh, creepy or scary or both. Was the TikTok a theory? Well, I don't know if it was a theory. Was that true? Um, that TikTok, um, it was a way to, for also the Chinese government to uh, have information on on people and to seem. I mean, well, sort of I think the, the the only implication there is that is that the Chinese government is all powerful, so that any company that has anything to do mm. with China under pressure from China, the Chinese mm -hmm. government can just say, "Give us all your data." Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at the history of the United States, the NSA kind of did the same thing, right? Like <laughs> yeah. AT&T and the other telecoms. So, mm -hmm. you know, they have their overlords, we have ours, but the history of human society has not been great 
with regards to the relationship between governmental authority and corporations that are operating within their purview. Um, mm-hmm. In both cases, there's been very little fine lines protecting people's information. And I, I would say probably it's more more pernicious in, in, in China, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen and hasn't happened and isn't still happening in the United States. Ever since uh, 9-11, under the Patriot Act, the government has had sweeping powers mm-hmm. with very, very thin due process to get access to a, a treasure trove of data about all of us. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, on top of that, we have our corporate overlords, the Facebooks of the world that have been, um, you know, or, or Google basically having all of our browser history, um, building a, a master composite of, of who we are, what we do. And that's why we get all the self-referential ads that we do, whether they're from Google or Facebook. That, that's our reality. That's our Orwellian state. It's just owned by private operators, whereas in in China, it's it's probably a step closer to the uh, to the communist government. Um, Greg, what do you think? What do you think is um, going to happen now with the metaverse with Facebook's Meta? Where is that going to take us? Do you have an opinion on that? Well, look at it this way: if if you want to understand uh, Facebook's intent, mm. when they entered India, they offered everyone in India free internet service. They would pay for all of it. Mm. Of course, it would be Facebook's version of the internet, which they would filter out what they didn't want people to see and allow them to see what they thought was Facebook friendly. And the Indian government on behalf of the Indian people said, thanks, but no thanks. And so (laughs) if you want to go to Facebook's metaverse, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit Facebooky. And so it's possible that Facebook will totally abandon its existing business model of tracking people and using that information to like pummel them with ads. But that would be kind of surprising. I mean, it's possible. But otherwise, I think Facebook's metaverse is probably going to be a little bit ad-based and spammy and um, annoying, just like Mm -hmm. the rest of Facebook is. Mm -hmm. Even though they change the name to Meta, um, I'm not sure that really changes the stripes of the company overnight. No, no, I, I definitely don't think it does. So, okay, we talked about Facebook. What what challenges are you, as, so, as sort of as globality, what challenges are you encountering along the way now? I mean, you did say that there's a lot of sort of regulatory issues that are that need answers. But just before you alluded to legal jurisdictions, so so different countries have different regulations um, in terms of sharing information. So Europe's GDPR, uh, also what Mitya Mitya mentioned before, what does that mean for you and setting up your global ID system, if I can say that way? Well, a a key challenge for us is, is to get companies that already have a 2.0 2.0 form of identity where they own the user, they own all the data, to be willing to migrate, really abandon their existing closed system and do something more open. And that's very, very hard for uh, a company, whether it's Airbnb or Uber or Facebook or any company that has essentially captured and controls a bunch of its users, to let those users have a form of identity that makes it easy for them to like move to another player and take their data with them. Imagine how it was in the old days, the phone companies owned your phone number. So if you Mm -hmm. switched phone companies, you had to get a new phone number. It was Mm -hmm. a big, big discouragement to moving. Now, they changed that by law and forced your phone numbers to belong to you, but that's just one credential. Almost all of our other identity credentials, all the reputation we build up at Uber or Airbnb or any other site, it's trapped within that silo. And nobody of those companies has yet been very forthcoming of making it easy 
for you to take your data with you. And so there's that huge obstacle. The Web 2.0 world is still very powerful and has huge incentives to keep people's data trapped within the existing silo. And, you know, and people are, you know, we're all a bit lazy. If it makes it hard to get your data out and use it elsewhere, well, the easiest thing just to do is keep doing what you've always done, which is just stay with the services you had. And so it is very difficult to get any sort of breakthrough in the existing areas. The place where there's daylight is some of the new companies that are setting up. They're like, don't have an investment yet in that in that siloed history. So they may be more willing to build on top of an identity stack that's open because it means they don't have to build their own identity stack. They can just rely on someone else's. And it used to be they had to rely on Facebook's, which meant that everything they did was kind of known by Facebook. But now you don't have to rely on Facebook to come up with an identity solution because there's new companies out there that leave that information in control of the end user as opposed to like grabbing control of it for themselves. When you so when we, we speak or when you speak of having this identity, you envision this I mean people have it on their smartphone, right? I mean how for now. For now. For for now. now. Yeah. Um so how does that what does that mean in terms of, I don't know, for example, what are what are Apple's bylaws? I mean, how do you then converse with Apple, for example, and putting this on the phone or using it on the phone, smartphone? With iOS 15, Apple introduced uh, additional kind of credentials that you can store in, in Apple's wallet. So I'll just use that example. And now, mm. for example, in US, you can store your driver's license there. You can even store your uh, COVID vaccine credential there. Mm -hmm. The problem with those credentials is that they're, they're all Apple-y, meaning that they, they, there's still certificates behind them that go to central authorities, and it only works within Apple ecosystem, nowhere else. So uh, what we are pushing for is something different, which is interoperable. So it won't matter if I'm using uh, iPhone today and I switch to Android tomorrow, I'm still able to use my verifiable credentials in any device. And it, it, they're also future-proof. So if Apple goes away to Tomorrow. Of course, it's not going to happen today, but maybe after a couple of decades, mm. if they make some wrong moves, the uh, my then is going to be gone. And then the, the idea is that we really need to have this standard that's not owned by anybody. So it's the same as Greg mentioned before, the DNS, like HTTP protocol that kind of powers the, the internet. Like that, that, that's what we're looking for, and that that's what needs to happen there in order to to be not kind of contained within the Apple or, or Google Android uh, ecosystem, it needs to be open. So just going back to your question, we, we did have uh, recently kind of like uh, we, we faced a bump on the road with, with Apple reviewers because they thought, oh, you cannot use, you cannot say that you are providing the COVID credential in your app because mm -hmm. that's going to make uh, people might interpret it differently. So we had to like change the name to just kind of like something very general, your own credential, self-declared credential and so on, which is really Apple trying to force their way on how, no, you like trying people to just accept the Apple kind of credential kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it, I don't think that that strategy is going to play out well for them in the long run. I'm wondering how can global ID be implemented or used by other online solutions that need to add the identity module for their services. Right, so we, we, we do a few things there. Well, one of the things that Greg mentioned before is that we're trying to be this bridge between Web 2 and Web 3. And in those cases, we offer it, uh, we were actually building the APIs for companies where mm -hmm. 
I can now, as a company, offload my users to uh, not Global ID, but I call Global ID's APIs, and what happens in the background is actually uh, verifiable credentials are being issued. So all of a sudden, I, as a company, become an issuer of those credentials. And now, and if I do that for all of my users, now I'm just giving my users a way to self sovereignty, uh, to, to, to self sovereign identity. So users now can download the Global ID app, and they can actually claim those verifiable credentials, and all of a sudden they become an SSI user. So we're we're, we're kind of trying to make the transition very easy for for companies that are still in web 2 now uh, for companies that are in web 3 that that's not even a problem usually those companies are starting fresh so they don't have any users uh and they just uh, if they kind of just use the standards uh, it, it doesn't even matter um they they can use our apis to kind of issue those verified credentials or uh they can use a product that we call that, that's called globally connect which kind of uh works in a similar way as auth 2 uh so you can kind of prove the ownership of your identity and then you can just um, lock people in. There are some really cool products that we have uh, uh, that we have kind of slotted for in 2022 mm -hmm. that are hopefully are going to help a lot with the uh, especially browser adoption of, of identity. Uh, so and but yeah, I would suggest anybody that's interested just go to developers.global.id and, and you can kind of see what we have there. Mm, but to yeah. give a to give to give a practical example, it, we have a credential called the Bonafide credential, yep. which is a credential that meshes proof of your phone number with proof of your government ID and potentially proof of your ability to log into some other financial account and cross-reference that your name's the same, your address is the same, et cetera. And with that credential, we're now talking with credit unions to see that if you show up at their site online, can you, by presenting that credential, not have to fill out all the other information you normally have to go through to get a bank account? And if you can, then you're off to the races. And so this credential could be strong enough that people could bypass the usual sign-up processes and do things online that they used to have to walk into a branch to do. So that's an example of even for a fairly conservative industry like the credit union industry, basically beginning to accept credentials as a way for account openings. Or if you need to cash a check or do a wire transfer, if you have that credential, they'll trust you enough to do it. Okay, great. Thanks for painting that. I actually also was wondering, uh, you also have a, an XRP global ID card? Um, I noticed that on your webpage. Um, how does that work? Well, that that's a rewards car for the, um, oh, the XRP card. army group. So mm. people that are fanatics about XRP, they can join the group, <laughs> they can get a card, and that particular one allows them to earn like cashback rewards paid in XRP. Mm, okay. So that's just that's just an example of a group getting together mm. and self-identifying and then getting some benefits because of that uh, that fanatical membership. Mm, okay. Who are the current digital identity main players, or can, or are there? Is anyone doing what you're doing, or similarly? So we're we're unique, fairly unique, I would say, in the concept of a global namespace. There's lots of folks out there that are verifying identities. Mm -hmm. Companies like Verith and Onfido for doing government I IDs. There's companies like Plaid that lets you verify that you can log into a bank account. There's companies like Twilio that let you confirm that you control a particular mobile phone number. There's a company like Checker that does background checks. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of folks like that around. We are really a customer of those companies. We're not competitors to them. We're just taking those credentials and attaching them to the, to the namespace. And so that's sort of our unique 
unique sauce is is the concept of a global namespace. So, but there's plenty of other folks out there that are active in in actually doing verified credentials, and and we are customers or partners and investors in those companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. What obstacles or challenges do you see potentially in preventing mass adoption of sovereign digital identity technology? Or would slowing down the adoption would be more the case? Or is it the case? Well, so there's, there's two types of obstacles that I would say. Well, mm. one is that countries are still trying to like hold on mm. to their sovereignty and they keep pushing national identity systems just like mm-hmm. they pushed national covid systems mm-hmm. and and that type of thinking well it just works here mm. makes it impossible to be interoperable at a global level so all the problems you have when you're traveling between countries with covid credentials that all happens with payments and many other services so to the extent that countries or regions like europe or the united states come up with standards that work only within their geographical zone, that absolutely undermines the ability to have truly self-sovereign credentials. Because if your credentials only work within a certain geographical border, well, it's really not self-sovereign. It just means mm-hmm. that you are under the thumb of that government. And then the same thing with private enterprise. If, if WeChat can't interact with WhatsApp, mm-hmm. that means each of those has tried to trap you in a silo and you're just, you're basically an ant in their big ant farm. And Hmm. so corporations and governments continue to work against the idea that individuals, people could actually be self-sovereign and could have rights that come first to them uh, and then actually work within a particular company or work within a particular government. So it depends on your view of whether the world should be bottom up for the good of people or top down where, where people just fit into the schemes of governments and companies. And we're Hmm. obviously in the former, Hmm. but the world pretty much still operates in the latter where governments and corporations, and I'm not anti-government or corporation, but I, I do recognize that by those folks forcing us into silos, it means it's really hard for us to move between the silos. And that traps the world at a certain level of development, far short of where they got to in Star Trek. <laughs> Absolutely. What does your future roadmap look like, maybe in general macro terms? I know, Mitya, you mentioned in terms of development, but um, where is global ID in this process now? And maybe where do you see where do you see the, we, the people, where are we now? We specifically for 2022 and a little bit further on, we kind of set out to to solve for six different kind of product offerings or six different problems. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about them throughout this uh, podcast. Uh, so mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I'll just do a quick recap. The uh, One of the things where we are uh, very interested in is like, how do we solve for traditional finance? Uh, how do we solve for def- DeFi, so decentralized finance? How do we, we kind of green those wallets that are online? Another thing that I don't think we touched upon was the, we touched upon the mobile wallet and how do I do this? But I think the key crucial thing there is going to be the user experience. Mm-hmm. So if, 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 if it's super easy for me to just... Uh, kind of use this when I'm crossing the border, when I'm actually entering a restaurant and I need to show my vaccination card or whatever. We really need to solve for that. So it's super easy. And then uh, one aspect, another another opportunity for us is the trusted communities. So think of it as uh, how can we create a community that actually that I can trust? And then if I'll, I'll give an example, if somebody wants to 
do a Bay Area biking group and everybody that can join that group needs to prove that they are from Bay Area. They're from one of the zip codes in, in Bay Area. Uh, all of a sudden, me joining that group actually and going through those things is going to make me uh, kind of trust that group even more. So the fifth thing that I want to mention is how do we insert ourselves like Web3 is all about these modules that can connect and it's all kind of open. So we, we want to insert ourselves into different uh, like services that are out there and not only Web3 services, but also Web2. So how can we build something that's going to communicate with Discord bot, for example, or, or something else. And mm -hmm. last but not least is the, what we mentioned before is this, how do we actually make this bridge for Web2 uh, companies to kind of port over to Web3? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, you guys definitely have your hands full. Um, is is there anything else? There, I mean, there's a lot to digest here, but is there anything else that maybe you'd like to add that we didn't cover um, or maybe they didn't ask or that you would like to share? We actually talked for almost an hour. So, um, well, I think I would just summarize by saying that, you know, ultimately, this is a, a question of what kind of world do we want to to live in? We've, mm. we've, um, you know, the last sort of 10 years has been a world of, of social media. And I, I will give credit both to Mark and to Jack. I think they both realize that that world is coming to an end as mm -hmm. the dominant paradigm. I mean, Mark proactively disrupted himself by deciding that uh, Facebook is old news and he has called his new company Meta. Mm -hmm. um, you now, you can question the sincerity, but I would not question the fact that he realizes that the uh, the cheese has moved mm -hmm. and, and there's going to be a new new game in town. And Jack resigning from Twitter and deciding to put his energy into the world of, of Square and what Square is beginning to do with blockchain and DeFi um, is an indication that even the, the titans of today realize that the world is uh, shifted and changing. And so we all as individuals and in the organizations that we're, we're part of, we can be, you know, part of that change or, or we can have, we, there's a little poem that I, that I hear, I believe I hear, which is each day I hope and pray that tomorrow will be the same as today. And so there will be a large group of people, groups and organizations that are kind of holding on to the web 2.0 world just because it's familiar and it's economically beneficial for them to do so. So just like you might be suspect of whether Exxon is going to be the uh, folks that bring us the solar energy solution of the future disrupting themselves, I, I would question whether we expect the, the Web 2.0 titans to be the ones that are going to leading the charge to disrupt themselves and bring the new world. Um, they might do some things defensively, but I think the future is going to be brought by a new generation of founders, a new generation of protocols, and a new generation of risk takers rather than the uh, the, the usual suspects bringing us uh, the future that, you know, we either we or our kids are going to going to live it. And so I am encouraging everyone to be proactive and self-responsible and, and start to do the things that will make us familiar with being in charge of our own destiny, as opposed to kind of leaving that to the uh, the titans of uh, industry and the usual suspects in government. Um, so embrace it, be a little bit afraid of it, but mm. but be proactive and be part of it rather than having it just happen to you. That's my uh, that's my swan song on that one. <laughs> wow, thanks, Greg. Um, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, Mitya, any final thoughts? No, I mean, you, you cannot top what Greg just said. No. So I, I, I would just 
add that if you are interested in in kind of i mean we talked about a lot of things but to reach out whether you are just interested in exploring the space you want to join global id or or you just want to work with us as well i mean when any, any any way shape or form please do so because yeah it, it's going to take a lot of us to kind of start to make this uh, revolution happen yeah and rome wasn't built in a day either right so well thanks so much for for teaching us about digital identity sovereign identity what you guys are contributing um giving us sort of the motivation to think about what kind of world we want to live in this was definitely extremely informative for me I, i've learned a lot so and um, i'm sure the listeners will as well so thanks so much um we'd love to have you back and maybe some time to to see how you're progressing and and um where you are with your roadmap um in the future so thanks so much thank you thank you take care thanks you too bye Thanks again to our guests at Global ID, as well as thank you everyone for listening. A big thanks goes to Fourth Tech at Coin Market League for co-sponsoring this episode. Thank you also to the Badia Music team for providing their music. You can check out their latest album on badiamusic.com. You can find all supporting information on our website, blockchainrecorded.com, and listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon podcasts, as well as Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Happy holidays, everyone! Stay healthy, and we will tune in again in the new year. Thank you.